Good afternoon and welcome to the 177th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a discussion of denial, democracy, and witnessing in the age of COVID-19 and climate change with political scientist Nancy Rosenblum. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also catch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, November 30th, 2020, there are 1,465,111 deaths from COVID-19 globally. According to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, there are 13,500,315 cases of COVID-19 reported in the United States. And now there are a total of 267,635 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is, Sharon Hunt, teacher for a quarter century, dies at 65 by Sam Roberts. This was published October 27th in the New York Times. Sharon Hunt always knew she wanted to be a teacher, and once she graduated from high school, she was totally smitten with the idea after working as a substitute teacher in Georgia where she was able to do so without a college degree. Later, once her children were old enough that she didn't need to care for them full time, Ms. Hunt resumed her schooling. She earned two degrees in education, a bachelor's at Northern Kentucky University in Highland Heights, and a master's at Wright State University in Ohio. She taught elementary school for nearly 25 years, and since 1999, instructed fifth graders in the Reading Community School District northeast of Cincinnati. She retired when the school year ended earlier this year. Ms. Hunt had undergone surgery for knee replacement a week before becoming ill with the coronavirus, which some believe she may have caught from a physical therapist who had later called in sick. Ms. Hunt was hooked up to a ventilator for two weeks and then was told she also had pneumonia. She died on September 25th in a hospital in Montgomery, Ohio, before she could spend her first retirement check. She was 65. Christina Hunt, her daughter-in-law, said the cause was complications of COVID-19. You see it on TV, but until it actually happens to somebody you love, it's not really a reality, Christina Hunt said in an interview with Fox 19. We've watched it destroy and turn our family upside down in a matter of days. While her mother-in-law was ailing, Christina created a Facebook page called Sharon Strong. She fought the hardest fight we could have ever asked for, she wrote on Facebook. Sharon Strong is and will always be the perfect saying for our Sharon. Officials from the Reading Community School District echoed the family sentiments. In a statement, they said, Sharon was one of those teachers whose students came back to visit because they knew how much she cared and wanted to share with her in person what a difference she had made in their lives. 
Beth Wernery, the school board president, said if a child was hungry, she shared her lunch. If a student was having a bad day, she gave up her lunchtime to hang out with them. Sharon Faye Shields was born on July 11, 1955, in Cincinnati to Clifford and Aveline Shields. Her father managed the local water utility. Her mother managed an ice cream parlor company. She married Edward Hunt in 1973, and they moved to Georgia, where he worked for Ford. They returned to Ohio several years later and lived in Milford. Mr. Hunt had also recently retired and was looking forward to traveling with his wife. He's recovering from COVID-19 himself. In addition to her husband, Ms. Hunt is survived by her mother, her sons, Jeremiah and Joseph, nine grandchildren, her sisters, Brenda Metcalf and Pauline Heider, and her brother, Clifford Shields III. For those of you who don't think that the COVID is real, Mr. Hunt told Fox 19, I was one of those people who did not believe it was real, but I know now that it has happened to this family. I know that it is real. Okay, we're going to turn to our conversation for today. I'm really pleased to talk with Nancy Rosenblum, and let me introduce her. She's the Harvard University Senator Joseph Clark, Professor of Ethics in Politics and Government Emerita. Her field of research is historical and contemporary political thought. Her book, Good Neighbors, The Democracy of Everyday Life in America, came out with Princeton Press in 2016. On the Side of Angels, an appreciation of parties and partisanship received the Walter Channing Cabot Fellow Award from Harvard in 2010 for scholarly eminence. She's also the author, among other books, of Membership and Morals, The Personal Uses of Pluralism in America, which appeared in 1998. That book won the American Political Science Association David Easton Prize. She's also the editor of Thoreau Political Writings, Cambridge Texts and the History of Political Thought. Professor Rosenblum is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Science. She's also the co-editor of the Annual Review of Political Science. Nancy Rosenblum, thank you so much for making time to come on COVID Calls today. It's a pleasure, Scott. So let me ask you a question I always start with, which is where are you calling from and how's the pandemic looking there today? Well, I'm calling from outer Cape Cod, all the way out into the ocean. We call it Land's End. And um, Massachusetts has had something on the order of 266,000 COVID deaths, and it's now climbing here as it is in other places. But the Outer Cape is sparsely populated and um, uh, it's not uh, rising here, in part, I think, because people are so careful. Our nearest town is Provincetown, mm -hmm. and that is a population that suffered the AIDS in mm pandemic. And uh, so people are really quite alert to the dangers of communicative diseases. So those things combined mean that it is a comparatively safe place. Has Is the government, because of the distance out there from Boston and other population centers in Massachusetts, is the government a, a bit autonomous out there? I mean, are they sort of, people know the sheriff, people know the local political officials and they have a lot of, of standing there? Yes, they're small towns and they're run by town managers and mm -hmm. they have boards where the same people from the towns cycle from one board to another. The downside on, in present here is that um, we, for example, have virtually no COVID testing, mm -hmm. except if you're symptomatic, seriously symptomatic. 
which means that if you want to travel or whatever you want to do when you need a test, you have to drive quite a ways into the state to do it. Um, so we get neglected in some ways, but also left alone. It must have been hard there in the summer. I mean, it's a very seasonal economy, isn't it? Yeah, and it was hurt even more. We have, we have already had sharks, as you probably know, on the Outer Cape. And this year with the disease, uh, fewer people came. So the economy is suffering. It's suffering everywhere. But here, I think that uh, the unemployment and the evictions and the worsening poverty and the despair are really quite noticeable. Well, I have a lot of things I want to talk to you about today. Uh, I want to start actually with your 2016 book, Good Neighbors, um, which I happen to have a copy of here. And I hope everyone has got this book and read this book. And I want to actually turn to this um, first because this was written obviously before the pandemic. And I, I actually want to, so this book is an inquiry into conditions of trust, among many things, conditions of trust and mistrust that shape the vitality of democracy in the United States. And I wanna give just a sentence or two from it. Um, you write in the book, mistrust suppresses regular interactions. It dampens reciprocity and induces universal irritability, servility, perpetual defensiveness. A common outcome of mistrust is social isolation. The added damage mistrust inflicts is knowing that the agents of destruction are living amongst us willing to harm us and to ravage the quality of their own lives at home." Um, end of quote. And when I w went back and looked at that and looked at this book again, I, I felt the pandemic throughout the book. Um, and I wonder how you see the book and some of those things you were working with uh, you know, in this book. It's either in the light of COVID in these last nine months. Yeah. Well, I'm grateful to you for bringing this book up, uh, Scott, and perhaps not surprising because I did have a chapter there on neighbors and disaster. Um, but let me go back for a minute and just say that I think that the sphere of life around home with neighbors is its own quasi-independent sphere. It's very different from the workplace or from the areas of citizenship and voluntary associations. And what makes the sphere of life around home amongst neighbors critical is that it's about home, where we have extremely intense feelings and expectations of privacy. And because neighbors are inescapable, right? We can't get away from them. So neighbors' kindnesses are welcome, but it's also the fact that a bad neighbor can make everyday life a misery. And I speak of the democracy of everyday life because I think under normal circumstances, there's a sort of easy reciprocity, even if it's just to say, how are you doing, right? And um, and the test that we give of neighbors is less social status or whatever, or even race, then are you a good neighbor? Right. Simply. Um, and for the most part, neighbors don't um, have to see to one another's essential needs. We're not immigrants and we're not, you know, settlers in the West. Um, but sometimes we do. Sometimes neighbors hold our lives in their hands quite literally, and um, disasters are one of those times. So I, I wrote at that time about Hurricane Katrina. Right. And I had read an awful lot about um, firsthand accounts of it and, um, and uh, survivors of it. And what you learn is that the first responders are not the first, right? That the first responders to physical disasters like Katrina are um, neighbors before the government, before organized, you know, voluntary associations and relief efforts, neighbors come in, they rescue, they aid, they do all kinds of um, 
difficult things, and they often do it, typically do it, in fact, unthinkingly, right? Um, and it, it's, it's sort of interesting that people who are uh, heroic, who do courageous deeds of saving people, even if they're strangers and not neighbors, when asked about it, they say, well, I'm just a good neighbor. Mm -hmm. the, the phrase good neighbor does it. So all of that is, is the background to what's obviously changed and not changed in this COVID situation. Mm -hmm. Because with COVID, um, home is more important than ever. That is to say, it has become more vital uh, sort of landing place for people than ever. For one thing, we've for a long time been quarantined or semi-secluded, so the home matters. And that means that every trespass and every misdeed and everything the bad neighbor does is amplified because we're literally there all the time. And in fact, there are statistics, I think I have one here that in New York, uh, New Yorkers' patience has run thin, prompting a 42% increase in complaints about noise, about children, about the so on and so forth. So it's, it's amplified the difficulty of being a neighbor. And on top of that, neighbors are a peril to us, right? We right. don't know who can contaminate it. This is an invisible contamination. We don't know whether when we go down to the mailbox, for example, we're going to encounter uh, disease. So there's that element of mistrust uh, as well. Um, but I think that the all these negatives are I don't know if they're counterbalanced, but the other side of it is the sort of kindliness and helpfulness of neighbors that we sort of imagine and, and that we value. And, you know, the bit of mundane reciprocity, how are you feeling today, which is really just a ritual statement, has become something other than a ritual statement, right? Mm -hmm. How are you feeling today is a kind of um, direct acknowledgement of the death anxiety that we're all suffering now. So I, I really appreciate that that scale, starting with it at that scale, particularly because, as you said, um, the home, for those who've been able to be at home, and of, of course. course there are many in our society who've not had that ability at this time, and they've suffered disproportionately, but for the great majority of people, especially back in March, April, May, um, they were at home because they were following orders of the government. And so you end up with this very, as you point out, very strange situation where everyone's at home, but it's very hard to be neighborly. And you get these apps like next door and you get, you know, a sense of I mean, people are paying going up on the rooftops and banging pots and pans. There's forms of communication, but they're not over the hedgerow. They're not um, at the mailbox because there was particularly in those months, and this comes back to this mistrust issue, I think, just a real uncertainty around the disease. Could I even touch my mail? How far away should I be from a neighbor, particularly if they have health conditions or if I do? I think there's something, one more thing to say about this at, at least, and that is that um, COVID under these circumstances has created an extraordinary situation amongst the neighbors because the divisions over COVID, the partisan political divisions of COVID, is it real, should I wear a mask or not, have dribbled down from sort of public life generally, right, and political life into life at home. And we've seen this kind of destruction of the, of the sphere of neighbors historically before. Totalitarian regimes do that, right? They bring politics and surveillance and disagreements all the way down into the hallway in the house next door. And that's happened today. And I think that 
when that happens, when political pathologies really migrate into the neighborhood, into people at home, then we know that the democracy of everyday life has been disfigured in an extraordinary way. And I think that that has happened in the United States with COVID under Trump today. So I guess that's sort of one level up in terms of community, which is to get out of the neighborhood level and think about municipalities or states. I wanted to ask you about that because um, this has been a remarkable time for the study of federalism. I talked to Don Kettle pretty early on and, you know, Don Kettle has a relatively new book out in which he kind of laments. He worries a lot about federalism. He, again, another book that came out before COVID, but we look at it yeah. in a new light. And one of the dangers in there um, in his discussion, and I wonder what you think about it, is there's a lot of rhetoric in the United States traditionally around um, government at the local level, um, which sometimes empowers conservatives and sometimes empowers liberals, depending. Um, and that there's no problem too great that it can't redound that the states could actually mobilize and deal with that. And Don really takes issue with that uh, and worries about that. And I, and I guess I want to get your reflection on that, on that too, because the national response was nowhere. It's still nowhere, it, close to what it should be. So we have been looking to states really to either enforce public health restrictions top down or channel up the public's will in terms of restriction or lack of restriction. But it seems to me we're still learning a lot about what states are capable of in this time. And I guess I wanted to sort of open that whole question up to you in terms of party affiliation and, and partisanship and how that maps onto the way that states have acted at this time. Well, let me take just the, the general federalism question first. Um, there has been a, a complete failure on the part of the federal administration, and it's not simply incompetence, which I think it may have been at the beginning. It, it, it has been a kind of disengagement, mm -hmm. a, a, an abdication of responsibility, sometimes quite explicit, as when the president and his cabinet say, we're leaving it to the states, to the governors, right? And I think that this is an act of uh, political irresponsibility that has amounted to what we can perhaps uh, histrionically, but ne nevertheless, I think sort of deeply, truly called presidential killing right? <laughs> has resulted in this. So in effect, this has been left to uh, the states. And so what we've seen on the part of the governors of the states is a real partisan divide. Um, there's no question that Republican governors, like uh, Republican elected officials at every level, including the Senate and the Congress, have uh, kowtowed to the president and have uh, let down restrictions and not enforced sometimes nothing, even when uh, cases are rising. And they, often they are in conflict with local mayors. <laughs> so it's not just federalism, it's also the question of, of localism. And there are you know, there are states in which, and Florida is an obvious one, where the governors have disallowed mayors and local communities from enforcing any kind of um, public, health, public health measures. On the other hand, I, I mean, I think it's important to say, and I'm sure your earlier guest said this, there's a real limit to what states can do, not only because in a case like a pandemic, you need a consistent policy right across the nation, 
but also because of um, uh, budgeting and money, right? right? States have to run um, balanced budgets. They are losing their income because of the collapse of the economy, and they simply don't have the wherewithal to do what they have to, to do, even if they would do what they have to do. So I, it's an extraordinary, really an extraordinary situation. And, you know, this, in a way, this whole Trump era has laid bare some of the terrible flaws, institutional flaws uh, and structural flaws of American politics. And the question is whether we're going to try to address any of them and, and whether they can be addressed under the present circumstances. But I think that the, the big divide is a partisan divide. Hmm. And sometimes it's a whole state and sometimes it's a governor against mayors or, or a governor against a state legislature. All of this is terrible and, and um, paralyzing. And it's all exacerbated by conspiracism. I mean, I don't have to tell you or your listeners that, that the, that is the claim that the COVID isn't real or that it's um, Fauci is out to... to yeah. I don't have to go through them all. But there's also, I should just say one thing, localities also differ um, in how they behave for reasons don't necessarily have to do with the leaders at the top, right? There are local cultures, there are people who, like Provincetown, it's a very good example, that, uh, that suffered the AIDS epidemic and people are vet, take good precautions, right? There is a sort of local culture of taking precautions. Um, and I, and I guess I, if you're if you're interested in this conspiracy issue and the partisan divide, I, I would say that something important is going on with COVID that mm. exacerbates all of this. Um, and maybe I could say a word about that. It's Absolutely. Uh, let me, well, the one thing I wanted before this yeah. this moment passes because I, um, I really wanted to ask you about this. Were you have you been surprised? to see governors, even in governors in states that are so-called like swing states or purple states, Florida, for example, so in the thrall of the of Trump, I, I wouldn't even say the Trump administration, but of Trump himself, that they have been willing, just as you said, to override not just sensible local public health, um, but demonstrable life-saving public health measures. I mean, these are governors who have literally overridden the wishes of mayors exactly. of big cities exactly. in, in ways that I suppose in the future we will model, maybe it's already being modeled, I'm not aware of it, but modeling how many deaths that resulted in. I I cannot think of an example, I mean, even back in the Civil War, I can't think of many examples in American history where you see governors literally so connected with Washington to kill their own constituents. Um, I'm not surprised, okay. <laughs> and that's because I have watched for four years pretty closely the utter submissiveness and acquiescence of, rep of elected Republican officials at every level to Trump. And um, it, they, whether they do it cynically or um, opportunistically or because they're gullible, they follow um, every one of his tweets and his lies and above all his conspiracist claims. And so I don't know why we would be surprised that it would happen even under these conditions when he asks them to 
ignore public health measures um, because he denies these public health measures right. and so they go they go along so it, it it doesn't surprise me but it is extraordinary to see lower level officials in these states begging begging right to be allowed to do elementary things it's just an amazing thing there is nothing nothing like it anywhere and um and it shows other uh, it shows uh the power of the presidency and the power of this man this man with a compromised sense of reality and a capacity to impose it on the nation and there it is he's imposed it on the nation just a reminder, I, I think, you're yeah, listening. Yeah. Oh, just real quick, remind folks you're listening to COVID calls, and I'm talking with Nancy Rosenblum. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, Nancy. Please. No, no, no. There's something though that, uh, that, as a historian, I think um, I, I, I think it's worth mentioning to you what what makes these divisions and the conspiracy thinking behind these divisions. What what why it is that they have an opening, even as you say, right where we have disease and death. And I think, uh, let me see if I can find um, something good on this to read, but maybe not. But historically, and I've been reading histories of uh, pandemics or plagues mm -hmm. in the 14th century and the 17th sure. century, and even fictional accounts like Camus' plague. Sure. Right? What you have there is, is an immersion of people directly in the experience of disease, right? The corpses are on the streets. The rats are out there eating the corpses. The odor coming from the carpusels and the vomit and the blood and so on is there. The morgues are overflowing so the bodies can't be picked up. There's a, a visceral experience of pandemic historically. And it, a pandemic at this moment in the United States and advanced industrial countries is altogether different. That is, we are distanced from this disease. Right. If people are sick, they're quarantined at home. If they're very sick, they go to closed and locked hospital wards, right? If they, if they, when they die, they're put into refrigerated morgue trucks. There are no funerals, right? right? There, there are no burials. So although people may know people who've had it and our experience is mediated, it's mediated by the news, which is often politically biased mm -hmm. mediation. It's mediated by, mediated by interviews with doctors and nurses, right, and with survivors, but it is distant from us. And I think then when we don't have the visceral experience of disease, it allows these kinds of conspiracy claims and nonsense to enter in a way that it would not if we had corpses in the street. I, that's a, so I'm glad we made this turn into talking about conspiracy. And, and that part of it, uh, you've helped me on, sort of crystallize that, my thinking a little bit, because it is such a different experience of disaster, even mm -hmm. of very recent important right. disasters like September 11, uh, Hurricane Katrina, many other hurricanes, um, where you either have a critical mass of people in a locality who are deeply affected, they saw the water, you know, they smelled the smoke. Enough people do have those experiences. Well, we'll come to this in a minute. Some people are even still doubting their own senses at this point, which I can't understand. We'll get to that. But but this pandemic has been, I was speaking with someone else and we were talking how, how much it made us think about the Cold War. It almost feels like we're living in the town over from where there was a nuclear attack. Something bad has happened and we have to stay indoors. We can't see or really sense it. And you, so you think that's the opening? 
through yes. which the conspiracy belief comes. Well, it makes it much easier. I, where, where you have a direct experience, reality bites. And it may not bite enough people and it may not bite hard enough right, to alter certain political things right. or experience or you know, your own behavior, but reality bites. And I think that there is a kind of distancing, not an unreality, but a distancing from the visceral experience of this disease that makes it possible to be detached enough that you will swallow political claims. I mean, I, I guess I want to maybe just back up a step with this because, um, as you said a minute ago, Trump, it's hard for me to know where you draw the line between sort of disinformation and propagating conspiracy. And maybe that's not an important line to draw, but early on, he was just disengaged. He was sort of in disbelief. And then it seems that it became a, a denial and conspiracy became an electoral strategy for him. I mean, clearly by June that had become part of, and so he layered the election on top of all of this. So I guess I want to get your, your sense of the complexity of that, because first of all, the pandemic is, we're learning new things about it all the time, even right now. So you have a sort of moving frontier of scientific knowledge. So even under the best conditions, public health officials are going to have to be changing yeah. their story along. And then you have a president who's in and out, in and out of touch with reality, I think. Um, yeah. And then you have this other strand that sees some sort of strong political advantage to be gained by people taking actions that are against their own best interest. That's a lot to put on the table, but I wonder again if you can sort of sort some of that out because it's been really compressed in these periods of months where it seemed like we went from, oh, well, the administration doesn't exactly know what's going on, but certainly they'll take action to they're on TV telling us to do the exact opposite thing that we should be doing. Right. Well, uh, again, I don't think this started with COVID. Okay. Well, take us back then. I think that we have a president, as I say, with a conspiracist mindset. It's how he sees the world. He has a very compromised sense of reality. And for four years, he has been imposing it on the nation. And when reality is not of the sort that he likes, it doesn't serve him. It's not what he believes is true. Uh, he will uh, find an enemy to blame for it. He will deny it and find an enemy to blame for it. This is, this is a pattern, whether it's the deep state Right or uh, Fauci, who he, can't, he began to call an idiot, or the entire Democratic Party—that's treasonous. Um, he 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 does this now. I I think it's interesting that there's a difference between lies and conspiracy, hmm. and um, in their effects. You know, all politicians lie. <laughs> lies lies are commonplace. Um, but here we have an avalanche of lies. You know, the Washington Post began counting them there in the tens of thousands. They're like ephemera. They come and they go, right? They're washed away. Now, conspiracy is a narrative. It's a narrative of that things are not as they seem, right? The disease is not what it seems. Um, and that uh, 
what's going on here is some nefarious agent who is undermining us, we, what, whatever the, the commonplace is. And um, these narratives are very, very powerful. And I have a, a theory that I've worked out in this my latest book on conspiracism about what's going on here, which is especially, and I think you asked this question or have this question in mind, especially in most absurd conspiracy accounts, like right. QAnon or- QAnon thing, yeah, exactly. Whatever, and I think that what's happening pretty clearly is that some people are true believers, right? He says hydrochloroquine will cure you or Fauci is an idiot and or the election is rigged and people believe that. But for the most part, it's not that people think it's true, it's that it's true enough. It's true enough. It's not that the, they're, uh, they're denying the facts of the matter or that they believe the facts of the matter, but say the, it's that they, it's true enough. Meaning there's a deeper truth to this claim, right? Than the obvious truth. And the deeper truth is that there are treasonous people out to get Trump and to get them. I, if I can give you a banal example of this, um, when, do you remember this, this is what prompted him to write this book at, at his inauguration, he claimed that he had the biggest crowd ever. Right, right. Bigger than Obama. And then the photographs of the National Park Service came out and they showed a modest crowd. And he said the photographs were doctored, just like that, the photographs were doctored. And what we have here with his conspiracism on every political issue and on COVID and now on the election is a kind of very deep divide in the country. It is of course a partisan divide, but more than that, it's an, what we call an epistemic divide. It's a, a divide about what does it mean, what does it mean to know something? Right. What does it mean to know that the election is rigged? And we are divided about that, completely divided. So then I just want to take it one step further because yes. I've been thinking a lot about uh, September 11 denial yeah. and Sandy Hook denial. So to take it the next sort of level, I mean, the QAnon, so believing stories, which may, it's helpful the way you describe it. They may seem far-fetched stories, but at the core of them, there's some some core beliefs there that people can latch onto. As you said, it's true enough. Bad yeah. people are out to do bad things to right. America, and Donald Trump's the right guy to, to solve that. But that, to me, seems an order of magnitude different from people saying that there were crisis actors in Connecticut and those children didn't die, or people who are literally saying that COVID is, is a hoax. I mean, they go beyond saying this is China declaring war on the West, and they say it's actually not happening. All right, well, let me take the, the COVID one first and then the Sandy Hook, because I think that we're talking about slightly different things and each, each of them is interesting. What's happened with COVID is that the country has divided, people are divided. They, they, see, they see this disease not as a misfortune that has been fallen the country or the world, they see it as an injustice. And there are two different accounts of what the injustice is, right? For sort of Democrats and, and other progressives and other people, the injustice is that we have a government that isn't taking care of us, that, right? That has abandoned ship and that the, the disease itself has revealed the injustices in the country. That is, there are people who are suffering this more than other people are suffering it. And so the injustice is there. It's, a, it's political and structural, and that's what matters. The other side says that the injustice is injustice to them. 
They inverts it complete. They invert it completely. Mm -hmm. The public health measures are an injustice to them. That they are tyrannical. They say without irony, live free or die. Just absolutely with, uh, without irony. They see this as, if they don't see it as tyranny, they see it as a kind of paternalism. We're going to do this for your own good. And they don't believe that it's being done for their own good. Mm -hmm. So we see with, with this a kind of the frame of injustice, which is a bizarre frame to impose on a disease like this, right? Yeah, I mean, sure. historically, if you had a, a pandemic, you would see it as this misfortune. It may be the punishment of God, right? Or maybe an act of nature, but here, absolutely not. It's we're being treated unjustly, except that the, the notion of injustice is, is opposite. I think that, that Sandy Hook and things like that are a, a different order and that there's something different going on. I mean, not entirely, but don't forget what we have out there besides a president and a party that's willing to go along with everything is we have uh, a social media that encourages entrepreneurship. Hmm. We have conspiracy entrepreneurs and Sandy Hook and some of these others are entrepreneurial efforts. These people make up these stories. They make big money out of it. <laughs> And they have influence from it. And when the president will retweet, you know, crisis actors about this tragedy at Sandy Hook, they're thrilled and they get very rich and their followers increase. Now, there's some, almost always some political key, like the key to Sandy Hook is that the, these are not just crisis actors. It's not just made up. They were hired in order to promote gun control. Right. And the same is true of some of these other crazy things. Um, but I think that that's a different order of business than um, the conspiracy that comes out of government that creates these kinds of political divisions and um, that has created the, this uh, divide about what it means to know something. That's fascinating. And that, that term conspiracy entrepreneur is one I'm going to use now. Right. Uh, and I just to stick with that, I mean, that's really an important insight um, because, you know, that's the Alex Jones effect, right? I mean, these are sort of media figures who were running something, you know, very small, and then they found a way to hitch on to a story which became so outrageous that either people wanted to hear more about it because it was literally shocking, I suppose, and outrageous, or because maybe it tapped in, as you said, well, this is just another way the government's trying to take my guns away, this outrageous act that they... There's another appeal to it. Mm. <laughs> um, and Alex Jones is one example of it, but there are many others, which is that if, if you say to Alex Jones, what makes you think that this was staged, right, and that these six and seven-year-olds weren't slaughtered, he'll say, I know acting when I see it. Mm. I know acting when I see it. There is a kind of, you're joining a cognoscenti, right? You have special insider knowledge that nobody else has. You're the true skeptic, right? Even though, of course, you're not a skeptic, you're swallowing some bizarre story, but you see yourself as the modern skeptic. You don't believe the mainstream news. You make these decisions for yourself and you have inside knowledge. And that is a very appealing thing to people. I, in the background, you may hear we've got a very strange November thunderstorm happening here in New Jersey right now. Um, it's coming here. But the, um, yeah, I think that's really, I think that's really illuminating. And I guess it also, 
I mean, it comes back to it's a point to, to segue to what I wanted to talk with you about next, because usually then you would have some recourse in a moment like that. You already have talked about one, you know, reality bites you. So you just, you're impacted by the disaster in some way, or you know somebody who was. So what Alex Jones tells you over here is overwhelmed by the reality that your brother tells you or that you experience it yourself, your own direct experience. But then we also rely, particularly in the United States, let's say since the late 19th century, we rely on science, we rely on professionals, we rely upon experts, so we rely upon the legal system and sometimes all of those intertwined. So for example, the class action lawsuit brought against um, I'm not sure it was a class action, but a lawsuit brought against Alex Jones. No, that's not a class action, no. but it's a defamation lawsuit brought right. by individual parents. Yeah. So we we rely on the legal system. We're going to get to the bottom of this. What's the what's the actual truth here, and what harm has been caused by him doing this? So that's one domain. Um, but I want to ask you about that, but also you know about the role of experts in all of this, because it seems like. Well, Americans have always had, I guess, an uncomfortable relationship with expertise. We we right. we debate it endlessly. People are defined in and out of expert culture kind of continually through our history. So I guess I want to start with kind of an open-ended question from you, and then we'll turn to climate change. How have your own thoughts about the role of expertise in American politics been shifting, if at all, in these last few months? Well, I think whether you're talking about Co generally, or about COVID, or uh, about climate change, um, we're coming up against, as you say, a deep cultural mistrust of experts that's peculiar, I think, to America. And um, where it comes from, you know, is a historical is a historical question. In part, it's anti-elitism. It's part the American confidence in common sense, right? and what we know, in part, it's well taken. That is to say, experts can be wrong and experts sure. in all areas, especially when it comes to war and peace and torture and so on, have gotten us into trouble. <laughs> experts can be, so, so there's a rationality to democratic skepticism about expertise. I would begin there, right? Mm -hmm. It becomes a problem when, um, when it's automatic and when it is uh, inspired and um, fueled really by a kind of conspiracism. Uh, well, I, sh I should go back and say the other thing that's happened in the last 20, 25 years is that we've had institutions that produce and support warring teams of experts, mm -hmm. right? That's true of uh, almost any area of, of science. So um, the the, I think that sort of this very fertile ground for um, a mistrust of experts and for the difficulty of their getting uh, a hearing in the public, in the public. And when it comes to legislators and office holders, they have their warring teams of expertise. And almost any expert who speaks out on the basis of specialized knowledge about some policy question will get accused of betraying their knowledge and of being partisan and biased. So we've got a real setup for the difficulty of experts making um, making a place for themselves that is 
accepted and it's powerful in a democracy like America's. I want to sort of shine some light on a special issue that you edited of Daedalus that uh, has just come out this fall and congratulations on that. And um, it's- you should, you should advertise your own essay in that spot. And I was one of the authors, and I was really honored to be included and it's a tremendous volume and the, and the, the frame of it is so compelling. Um, it's around the idea of witnessing professionals and you describe that as, in, um, as you say in the introduction, we need a name for those who speak out from the vantage point of their specialized knowledge about the danger posed by crises like climate change. And I think, uh, again, completely applicable to COVID-19. Now, there's different time frames here, but COVID is not playing by the normal close, tight temporality of disaster. It's stretching out longer periods of time. And so it engages all sorts of things like climate change does about problems with evidence, um, problems that it's uneven, suffered more worse in some places than others. Um, and and so I want to sort of sort of get from you your sense of like how'd you come up with this idea first of all and the the notion of the witnessing professional and why and how do you think it allows us to see some possibilities with climate and climate action and we'll turn that to COVID in a second um, that we hadn't seen before. Um, I, I co-chaired a panel on climate change for the Social Science Research Council with the great political scientist, Robert Cohen, Bob Cohen. And um, uh, we talked a lot about the sort of usual social science studies that go on around climate change. And, you know, I am a, really a political theorist and a moral theorist. And I got interested in this question of role morality. That is, in, with regard to climate change, there are actions that citizens can take. Right, including scientists when they act in their capacity as a citizen, right? Mm -hmm. they, they march, they write letters, whatever. And there are actions that officials can take in, their, in, in terms of the responsibilities of their office. And then it occurred to me that there is a whole population for whom the idea of role morality was virtually invented. And that is professionals who come out of professional schools, who are licensed, who have status, who have to obey the, um, the codes of their profession, and that's true whether they're doctors or lawyers or public health people or journalists or, or whatever. And um, these, these people have been making enormous contributions to climate change, both to our knowledge of climate change and to the reception of ideas about climate change in the public. And I thought that spotlighting that across the board, 10 or 11 professions, and um, how these people came to first of all study climate change, but then more importantly, how they decided to take up this, this uh, role of being a witness. Mm -hmm. That is warning, right? And advising and holding people accountable and going public, depending on what your audience is, what you call public with what they know. And the and I should just, just say too that the, the issue revolves around what are the particular challenges, moral and ethical, ethical challenges for professionals when they become witnesses? Because there are very particular ones that we don't face as citizens if right. we go out there and agitate for uh, climate change. 
So. Well, let me uh, let's go a little further with that because I mean, you know, just to 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 talk about anybody who studies climate change is, is aware of some of these problems. It's it's scientists. There's enormous scientific consensus, but once you get beyond that statement, there's enormous uncertainty. And scientifically speaking, so there's one whole domain of difficulty um, in giving a kind of uh, answer that uh, you know news news media might want a quick thirty seconds to know. Well, what's happening? What's happened with climate change today? It's not the kind of question that a scientist can give a short yeah. answer to. So we have a domain of uncertainty. We have a domain of sort of risk communication, like explaining to people that this is real, but you may not feel it uh, in your community today or tomorrow in ten years, but it is impacting the world. So there's whole domains of uncertainty and difficulty in communication as well as, as you pointed out a minute ago, um, very deep-pocketed interests which have been well-documented by historians like Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway and others. There's a whole industry around climate denial, um, which makes it even harder to communicate. So those are just a couple of the things, but I, maybe you could say even more about the kind of stumbling blocks that professionals encounter, even when they do want to wade into this space and say, Right. Trust me, this is happening. This is not just science. This is also a moral imperative of, of our time. Right. That's, that's a great question, Scott. I think I would begin by saying there are levels of uncertainty. So we talk about the uncertainties and the uncertainty about risks for climate change, but that's the big, big picture, right? right. What, what's the, the, his, the historical future? How soon is this going to come, right? When, when are the oceans going to really heat up to a certain level that's, uh, sea, that sea level rise affects Miami. I mean, these are the big level mitigation uncertainties. But one of the things I hope to get out of this volume is that there are lots of aspects of climate change that are not very uncertain at all. <laughs> the public health people know a lot about um, what this is doing to air or to minority communities where um, the, uh, the um, overrun of gases is even more destruction, so destructive. So for, for many of these people, uncertainty isn't the great problem that it is if you're looking at the longer term and mitigation. I, I should say too that you know, there are many, many people who are involved not in mitigation, but in adaptation. Right. Local adaptations to climate change, and there the there is a problem of time. That is, what are you adapting to? What what level of sea right. level rise are you adapting right. to? But nonetheless, there are actions to be taken now. So, I just like to correct or alter a little bit this notion of the great uncertainty right. about climate change, because mm -hmm. globally and, and and historically it's true. But for all intents and purposes, for many of us, most of the time. There's less uncertainty. Um, I think that the that if you you want to know what the great problems for professionals are in a gen, general and generic way, it's that uh, it's the question of translation. Mm. You know how how you translate your expert knowledge, but I don't mean translation just in making it understandable to people. I mean what are the moral constraints on how you talk to people about what's going on in climate change in, in your field? And, and there are significant moral questions. So for example, how much do you simplify, right? What, what are the grounds of simplification? Can you make things 
too simple. One of the authors, a physicist in this volume, says that this two degrees centigrade level, right, that's supposed to be, we're supposed to keep under, is a political decision to have two degrees. And it's not a scientific decision. Now, do you say that? Because it's a very useful measure, right? For communicating danger and for making certain kinds of decisions. Uh, how much, so how much do you simplify is one. Another is, do you try to stir up fear, right? Yes. I mean, if you're a professional, do you, do right. you scream bloody murder? And um, one of the, the people in this uh, volume is a cognitive psychologist who points out that fear will only get you somewhere temporarily, right? Mm -hmm. Unless you have action uh, methods and a kind of hopefulness, fear won't work. And so it's bad and not just morally bad, right, to right. arouse fear. Um, and, and there, you know, many examples of this kind of, we, we talk about framing in, in political science. How do you frame, frame a question? Well, how do you frame issues of, of uh, climate change? If you know that climate change is a word that turns people off and that you shouldn't use green, can you talk instead just about health, right? right. Well, is that the right thing to do mm -hmm. <laughs> right? or not? So they're just extremely interesting questions about translation and then also about bucking your professional association. Right. Codes of professional conduct are always conservative and they almost never have anything to do with what's good for the public, right? For the nation or for the world, they're always what has, what's good for your client or your patient or whatever. So I think what, what you have in this volume are very personal, very dramatic stories about how people came to witnessing and what the very real ethical conflicts are for them. I just want to come back to that last point you make because it's it's a really important one that I think has been underexplored that the professional associations I mean for people who study them and who study yeah. that sort of level of of governance there you can get lost in there I mean it's limitlessly limitlessly fascinating um, to see how sort of um, loosely connected groups of workers can raise themselves into estimable professions in one generation through the formation of codes and standards, codes of ethics, engineering profession licensing. is a, what's that? Licensing. Ab licensing, absolutely. And and this is not just in science, this is for historians as, as well. But I wanted you to say a little bit more about that conservative turn there, because the claim is always that this is about harnessing the knowledge uh, and forming a professional group, which can then do even more for society, more for the economy, more for the government, the, the nation in time of war, whatever it may be as these different professions come into existence, which you would think means when there's an existential crisis like COVID or like climate change or like nuclear proliferation, that the professions would be the first out there saying, this is the action that 
that has to be taken. They exist in an, in an interesting political space. They have a lot of power, but they're not running for office. They should be able to be unbiased and sort of third party. And we don't see them acting that way. Right. Um, uh, one of the authors is very specific when it comes to science, that um, scientists don't have patients and they don't have clients, right? What they have are their colleagues, right? And peer review. And so they're very, very sensitive to the opinion of their colleagues and not at all attuned to social responsibility. Now, she makes that case for scientists. It's obviously not true of every profession. I just want to go back for one second to when you said, you know, a, a group can elevate itself into a profession in a generation. Um, and, and what comes with being a profession is a special education and licensing, a kind of status and um, remuneration. So there's an ethicist who has an essay in this volume, Dennis Thompson, who's really quite terrific. And he, he tells a very funny story about ordering a book called Undertaking Ethics. He thought it was how you undertake ethical behavior. And it turns out it was ethics for undertakers. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they had this professional identity. Professional code for undertakers, of course. codes, right? Yeah. And we've seen those codes violated. Actually, there are terrible news stories about what undertakers do or don't do. So um, so what professionalization does is produces a very powerful group. And this group wants to keep its people in line and it wants to punish its people. And one of the things it doesn't want typically is for their their people to become embroiled in politics. Right. It's It's really pretty simple. But it's it, it, and it's very interesting how um, many people follow those rules. Academics they publish in peer reviews. I have an essay by a young political scientist, Jess Green, who says that if you're up for tenure in, in political science in academia and you publish op-eds or you go out, you know, and, pu and publish screeds because you're advocating or warning or whatever, you are punished for it. So there are pretty strict um, constraints on professionals, and this makes it interesting. I, I should just say that there are a couple of people in this volume who have pushed the bounds of their profession, not just for themselves and their behavior, but that they have created new norms of, of it. And Rebecca Henderson is one. She teaches at the Harvard Business School, and she has instituted programs uh, in the business school about corporations and fossil fuels. It's really quite fascinating. It's interesting to the the point you make that this idea of some sort of distance from politics becomes the sort of sine qua non of professional behavior. Um, but to make that to take that a step further, that means you would have to depoliticize disasters. You would have to see them as inherently sort well, of that's what people do, right? Which is hugely problematic, as we were just talking about. You know about about COVID. To, you can't really understand COVID and the experience of COVID in the United States this year unless you've understood Donald Trump and partisan politics and you know, different um, belief systems across the United States and even, as you said, sort of microclimates of politics in Massachusetts or San Francisco or Philadelphia compared to other parts of the country. This goes back to something we were talking about earlier where I said, do you interpret COVID as a misfortune, an act of nature, or do you interpret it as an injustice? And we have to interpret 
disasters as an injustice, even if they're an act of nature, <laughs> like right. a hurricane there's some, or an earthquake, there's somebody who's responsible for Slack's business, uh, building codes, right? There are engineers who knew that their advice wasn't being followed and, and went along. So I, I think that we, we hold people accountable and should in democracies, and we do too little of that. Let me ask a follow-up about the witnessing professionals. You just alluded to this a minute ago that there's possibility here that individuals within those systems have the capacity to shift the professions. Right. Um, and I and to sort of expand on this, it was interesting to me to see that Scientific American magazine, for example, endorsed a political candidate for the first time in its 170-year history. Mm -hmm. um, we have social media platforms stepping and maybe there's strong business interest here i mean there's a lot of ways to interpret this but in various different quarters and even in the usually highly conservative american historical association they've there's a sort of a sense in which if you're ever going to speak out if you're ever going to take action that may have been previously deemed unprofessional now's the time to do it to begin to to start some reform around what professionalism and expertise even means I think I've already shown my naivete once in this conversation. I hesitate to do it a second time, but do you have some hope that this is a reform moment? I, 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 I certainly think it's a moment of increasing public awareness, of increasing mobilization. Um, I, I don't see our partisan politics permitting too much. Hmm in the way of um, American policy. And um, it's unclear to me uh, that we have a structure really for international cooperation that makes a difference. So I would say I'm not, I'm not very hopeful. And one of the things I've, um, all of the authors in this Witnessing Professionals in Climate Change express despair, but their hope overcomes their despair. I, I quote this uh, botanist, not a, a, a zoologist, who spent her life studying frogs, right? And one of the species she, she studies had just gone extinct, right? I mean, it's, it's a little, it's a cameo of the despair of people who are very much immersed in it. On the other hand, as I say, these essays are Hopeful. I'm, you know, interested in politics, and I don't see, I don't see um, us taking the measures we have to take. Which, which is why some authors who are, would agree with this political um, pessimism are looking for a technical fix. They're looking into geoengineering. People who not understand the risks and worry about it, nonetheless, think this is something we may have to do because there literally will not be a political solution because of the structures right. of, a, of democracy in the United States or other parts of the world and the structure Short, of professions. Right, short-sightedness of individuals and the short time frame of political, of political decision-making. One of the authors in this volume is uh, an admiral, David Titley, admiral, uh, one of the high admirals in the Navy who, who really developed institutions within the military for talking about and dealing with climate change. And they're affected, their bases are affected, their supply chains are affected, their local conflicts are uh, coming out. And 
he points out why they can't make much progress because of budgeting. Budgeting is short term, right? And so, all, and and the planning that they have to make for climate is long term. It's it. There are real real obstacles. The possibility um, right now in front of us is that you could learn from climate change and COVID-19 simultaneously. There's yeah. been a lot of interesting discussion about that and what the sort of collective action, particularly of April and May, March, April and May in the United States demonstrated, people said it was an intractable problem. Everyone will act in their own self-interest. Nobody will take collective action. We've heard that around climate change. And then for 90 days or in other parts of the country like New Jersey, much longer, um, people did take action to protect others who they will never know. Um, it's an imperfect natural experiment, but none others have used that, that, that phrase. Um, but I do wonder if this can't be some sort of inflection point, and particularly not that we would wait around for others to do it, but that those observations, what we're learning about climate by way of COVID, um, and the fact that Donald Trump did not win re-election, that those could become the grounds for new forms of political action. I guess it's a little bit of talking back to that. Yeah, I, and, and I would talk back to you, although I don't want to end on a, a truly pessimistic note, that COVID is going to be dealt with with vaccines, right? There is going to be a scientific fix for this. Hmm. It isn't politically difficult, <laughs> right? Governments are going, if they can get their hands on it, government's going to distribute these vaccines to their people. It's the only, and it, it is like climate change. It is a pandemic. It's worldwide. And that's why I think the people who know better are nonetheless really urging research into um, geoengineering things, because they think that we are going to have to intervene uh, as dangerous as that is, and as half a solution as it is, because it doesn't stop the warming, um, we may have to do those things. And well, we're almost up on time, and I guess I just want to follow up with that one more question then. Um, if the techno fix of COVID is the vaccine, right. what does that pretend, coming back to our earlier discussion about denial, conspiracy, those things are then just continued, will continue to run wild because there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there who are looking to mobilize those those various narratives. Is that just a permanent feature of our politics now? No, I don't think it's a permanent feature. I think it's going to be with us for some time in the United States. And that's because the Republican Party, with or without Trump, has seen the efficacy of this. And they've seen that there's a population, which is basically their voting population, right, that... Um, likes this and responds to it. And so long as the Republican Party is a minority party, they are going to have to do, they are going to have to do this. But I don't think it's, uh, it's permanent by, by any means. I think it won't be marginalized. It won't go back to the fringes of the uh, social networking, but uh, eventually it will abate. I don't think it's permanent. I think it's part of our partisanship. And until that changes, it's going to be hard to do away with it. We've seen an entire political party run on it. You expect that in 2024? Donald yes. Trump or some other conspiracy candidate who says the COVID was a much 
not as bad as everybody, all the experts would have you think. We made it through fine. Don't listen to those experts. Listen well, I don't to know that they'll, they'll do it about COVID, but they'll do it about something. I, I expect we will see it for a while. Hmm. Wow. Well, you know, conspiracism has delegitimated our institutions and, and expertise. And de delegitimation is not mistrust. It's not sowing doubt. It's something quite specific. It means that these institutions or these people or this political party has lost all meaning and value and authority and doesn't, doesn't um, require your compliance. Well, it, it's absolutely essential reading then that people get um, your book, Good Neighbors, The Democracy of Everyday Life in America, Nancy, and that also they pick up the Daedalus issue that talk about witnessing professionals. We need these. Um, and because too often disasters are treated as aberrant, not as continuities yeah. and not as structural. Somehow there's some extra world out there, which is disaster world. And I think our discussion today, you've corrected me at multiple points, which I really enjoy to say, no, nah, let's, let's look for the structures here. Um, and that's really important to, to think about. Um, I want to just end, um, I've kept you too long, but I, and enjoying the conversation, but I, I want to just um, end if there's, you know, tell us a little bit more about what's coming next for you in, in terms of the research you're doing right now. Maybe we can finish up with that. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm hoping to write a, a, a book of three essays on our present problems, one on COVID and one on actually governing. I mean, we've seen an mm. extraordinary thing, which is the absence of government. <laughs> Yeah. Governing and what that means and why why civic education shouldn't just be about the constitution or whatever it should be. What does government actually do for you? Mm. So, and then a third probably on uh, protest and mobilization. So I'm I'm writing about our moment. Fantastic. I want to uh, remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls. You can catch COVID calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Tomorrow we're going to be talking about related conversation, actually, uh, COVID-19 as an organizational crisis in France. I'm going to be talking with Olivier Bras and Patrick Castell about that. And I want to thank my guest today, Nancy Rosenblum, for your time and expertise. Really enjoyed the discussion. Thank you, Scott. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow at five o'clock.